large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Fred Kaplan begins his latest book by pointing out that Thomas Jefferson is the most controversial founding father for our times. And as he did in his biography of Abraham Lincoln, he examines the life and thought of Jefferson through a reading of his many writings. The book, His Masterly Pen, a biography of the writings of Jefferson the writer, is published by Harper and brings Fred Kaplan, professor of English at both Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, to our show now. Welcome. Uh, thank you. A pleasure to hear your voice. <laughs> well, pleasure to hear yours again as well. Um, isn't uh, a major part of the controversy regarding Jefferson that he claimed to abhor slavery in principle while continuing to define slaves as property? Yes, uh, that distresses a lot of uh, us and our contemporaries now. Uh, but we need to exercise uh, our historical imaginations and put us back in uh, the uh, period of the early American Republic and of Jefferson's life and his contemporaries' life. All those famous founding fathers who gave us so much also were creatures of the world they lived in. And they lived uh, in a world in which uh, slavery was ever-present, not only in the South, but in the North as well, to a degree, and certainly worldwide. And uh, consequently, they, like us, are people of their times. Uh, of course, uh, Jefferson and uh, his fellow Southern elites uh, had uh, the more intense uh, contact with slavery since uh, the entire agricultural basis of the South was based on slavery. And the North also was deeply implicated in the slavery of the period uh, because the North provided uh, capital and shipping and insurance <laughs> uh, for the uh, triangular slave trade that uh, was basically uh, crucial to the American economy. So uh, at the same time, People like Jefferson, there were others, uh, many others, in fact, uh, both in the South and, of course, especially in the North, who are uh, uh, had various um, uh, attitudes towards slavery uh, that we can uh, identify with uh, from a sense that it uh, was uh, an economic necessity, and let's not think about it more, to uh, it was uh, it's an economic necessity and it's a necessity for my own personal uh, well-being and my family's well-being in this world. Uh, but uh, we have to think about this quite a bit and realize that slavery is very dangerous and damaging to us. It's damaging to the slaves. It's damaging to the masters. And uh, it's bad for our culture and it's morally degrading. He bought and sold slaves, and after the death of his wife, had six children by Sally Hemings, a slave who was his wife's half-sister. And, and didn't he believe that freed slaves and whites could never totally coexist? Well, yes, he did, he did believe that, as Abraham Lincoln believed that, uh, un, until uh, almost the last year of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, the... Uh, the uh, the, Jefferson, uh, like so many white Americans, 
felt a degree of fear in the slavery, the institution of slavery, uh, because they were well aware that they were uh, degrading uh, and uh, people, human beings, uh, and that these uh, human beings would inevitably be resentful and angry. And there were so many of them in some of uh, the colonies and some of the states. There were as many uh, uh, black slaves as white uh, people, and that uh, there was reason, uh, as one looked uh, around the world, especially to Haiti, for example, to be uh, to worry that there would be a slave rebellion. And the one numbers of slave rebellions is, is well known. They were brutally crushed. Uh, but uh, this uh, certainly uh, was a tremendous worry to slaveholders like uh, Jefferson. No, and it was he... widespread in the North as well. There was a sense that, yeah, we've got uh, a big slave population in the South. And what if they do revolt? What shall we do? Or shall we shall we support uh, with money and arms and our soldiers uh, a repression of a slave rebellion in the South? It was a very uh, uneasy, difficult, intense consideration. Well, not just the slaves. Didn't he assume a somewhat paternalistic tone when he addressed Native American tribal leaders? And uh, well, well, he did, but there was a significant difference in that. Yes. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, he had a sense of the the difference between Indian American Indian civilization and uh, white Anglo British civilization, but he also had great respect for Indian culture and great interest in it. Uh, he distinguished uh, very uh, substantially between. Uh, Native Americans and black slaves. Hmm. Uh, and uh, he had uh, great respect and admiration for Native Americans, but at the same time, uh, as a, a, a national, as, as a leader in Virginia and as a national leader, he uh, embodied also simultaneously with his respect for Indian culture and Indian languages, which he studied. Uh, and created a dictionary. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, he was an embodiment of the uh, view that Native Americans either had to become assimilated to white culture, white American culture, uh, and they had to be assimilated in a way that allowed uh, unimpeded and so uh, frequently, in fact, um, uh, aggressive uh, 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 possession of the lands that Native Americans thought were their own. So Jefferson, uh, despite all his respect for Indian culture, when uh, Indian tribes are ally allied with the British during the revolution and thereafter when Indian tribes stood in the way of white colonizers uh, who wanted that land for themselves, uh, Jefferson essentially uh, sided, of course, with 
the people he represented and the culture he was a part of. So the Indians, we... white, but let me just finish, because this is important, Leonard. Uh, uh, the, uh, the point became, look, guys uh, out there, we, we, we are looking after your best interest. You need to trust us. Uh, and the only way you're going to survive, uh, even in smaller numbers, but your culture is going to survive, is if you become like us and you adjust to our way of life. You become farmers, etc. So, Sorry, Leonard, but I no, I no, it's okay. I was just that. wondering about that in light of his very famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, well, we read those words differently. Yeah, I'm sorry, Leonard. Again, we we read those words differently than uh, uh, than Jefferson uh, uh, understood them as he wrote them, and as his uh, uh, American, uh, Anglo-American uh, contemporaries heard those words. They did not mean, and Jefferson did not mean, that all men are created equal. Not at all. He did not mean that, even though men. he writes that. And we have benefited from that phrase because we have run with it. And we have said, yes, indeed, all men are created equal. However, Jefferson and his contemporaries defined all men. They did not include blacks. They did not include Indians. They did not include women. Hmm. All men meant them, essentially, and their European equivalents and contemporaries. Now, he was trained as a lawyer, but he got involved in politics fairly soon. When he was in the Virginia legislature, he made proposals on issues from religious liberty to inheritance reform. Were they issues that remained of concern for him throughout his life? Yes, they did indeed. Uh, he uh, he was a, a pathbreaker in Virginia and in the colonies and in the early republic in uh, advocating religious liberty, religious liberty for everybody. It was controversial, and it took quite a while for the Virginia legislature to finally uh, accept Jefferson's view and Jefferson's phrasing. He didn't mean only Christian Americans. He didn't mean only uh, Americans who practiced a religion that had some connection to Christianity, like Judaism. He meant Islam and Buddhism and any religious practice, uh, de uh, in his view, uh, deserved uh, total freedom from government involvement or government control, that the United States government and the state governments did not in any way support religious institutions. They were private and personal creations and that each man's prayer uh, or non-prayer uh, was uh, a personal liberty that no one should interfere with. Well, did his his contemporaries view him with suspicion over his religious views? Yes, as, as a slaveholder who preached against slavery in principle but not in practice, and as someone who preached against big government and centralized government, but not when it went against his own goals. Oh, you're such a good reader, Leonard. Uh, yes, yeah. Of course, I emphasize those things. Uh, for the first part of your question, uh, yes, uh, 
Jefferson was a controversial man in his times and in some uh, areas of life and, and belief, he was a, a, a leader. In other areas, he was not. In regard to slavery, he would not push ahead of public opinion. So he, early on in his legislative career in Virginia, he made an effort to uh, promote emancipation. It was difficult to figure out the practical ways of doing it, but he made an effort. But it got slapped down. And thereafter, Jefferson, throughout his career, said, a public opinion, the United States is my United States, so white, uh, white America. And his public opinion is against emancipation. And I'm not going to step forward and try to rally people to this. I doubt that I will ever be successful. A, a public opinion has to move in that direction. It's the same position Lincoln took in the 1840s and in the 1850s. Same position in regard to slavery. Uh, Lincoln, of course, faced a, a, a rebellion, a civil war, and uh, the civil war inevitably led to emancipation. Uh, but Lincoln, like Jefferson, worried, what about the next hundred years? Would whites and blacks get along? Would there be race riots? Would there be bloodshed, et cetera? So, uh, so Jefferson uh, was in some ways ahead of his time and in regard to religious freedom, he was. And uh, he was severely chastised uh, by, many, by the religious establishment uh, in the United States at the time, uh, uh, evangelical to some extent, Baptist to some extent, Methodist to a great extent, uh, but also uh, particularly Presbyterian and Episcopal, who said, this man Jefferson, don't vote for him. He's an atheist, or what the word they use is infidel. It was the same word that was used about Lincoln early on when he began his political career. This man is an infidel, which by which they meant he's, he's a non-Christian. He doesn't seem to believe in the basic theological principles of Christianity, in regard to the virgin birth, in regard to Jesus, in regard to miracles, in regard to resurrection, in regard to the afterlife, and so on. And Jefferson's response was, my religion is none of your damn business. <laughs> and he was very explicit about it. He didn't use the word damn, but he was very explicit that no man's religion is the business of anybody else. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Fred Kaplan, whose latest book is His Masterly Pen, a biography of Jefferson, uh, the writer. It is published by Harper's. In 1774, when he was 34, we should point out that he died rather young, so pretty much all of the things that he did he did at a fairly young age. At 34, he wrote A Summary View of the Rights of British America. Was that something of an early version of the Declaration of Independence? It was indeed. Uh, it was how much a impact did early it have? version. I'm sorry? How much of an impact did it have? Uh, it, it had a moderate impact. It did have a moderate impact. What it, what it did was establish Jefferson's credentials among his elite contemporaries who were uh, uh, 
gathering steam for what became uh, the, the revolution beginning in 1775, of course, at Lexington, at Concord, Lexington. Uh, so it established Jefferson's credentials as a uh, as an important voice, not a, not the only voice, not the major voice, but as a really important voice, who expressed uh, the grievances mm. that the colonists had against uh, the mother country, against Great Britain, and against the ruling establishment in London. And it's a very powerful piece of writing. When uh, and and. and Jefferson wrote it without an assignment. No one asked him to write it. He wrote it uh, because of the strong feelings he had and because he had in his mind that he could uh, get this before his fellow Virginia legislators and they would use it as the basis for a resolution. And then that resolution would be uh, influential with the first uh, Continental Congress, 1774, 1775. And it was indeed, because it was uh, uh, widely read by the elite. And uh, uh, it was, without Jefferson ever promoting this, published by people who felt the same way as Jefferson. And so there were published copies of it. And then it was published in London. And it's and this is prior to the 1776 Declaration of Independence, and of course uh, the London ruling elite were uh, startled, if not shocked, by it. Well, he wrote in the, on November 29, 1775, "quote Believe me, dear sir, there is not in the British Empire a man who more cordially loves a union with Great Britain than I do, but." By the God that made me, I will cease to exist before I yield to a connection on such terms as the British Parliament proposed. And in this, I think, I speak the sentiments of America. So was he already seeing himself as a kind of a propagandist? of the? Yes, yes. And and of course, he was a great propagandist. And... uh, the, the uh, and and everything he he writes, uh, including the Declaration of Independence, is a supreme example of literature as propaganda and propaganda as literature. He is a marvelous writer, and uh, is able you know has a great gift for language. So um, he's he can write powerfully, and uh, I can appreciate what he writes as literature. Uh, because of the talent that he brings to what he expresses. He has a great talent for the right phrase and the right word, for metaphor, for example, for logical development, uh, for uh, the the power uh, of rhythm in speech and speech in written language. He's an extraordinary writer. And, of course, his Declaration of Independence is one of the great literary as well as political documents of our uh, history, very important to us. Uh, And it needs to be understood in the context of the time and why Jefferson is writing it. I mean, like all great literary propaganda, a lot of what in there is not exactly true. Uh, And when he says in the letter that you just quoted to uh, to a, a member of his family who has uh, not been able to uh, 
accept that America, the United States, or the states should become should rebel and become independent, and has gone has left the United States because he's being targeted uh, as a non-patriot and returns to Great Britain. He and his cousin Jefferson keep up a correspondence for a while, and so Jefferson, when he writes, hey. You know, <laughs> I'd love us to, uh, Great Britain and the and, and the colonies to remain essentially oh, part of one nation, one empire, uh, but not on the terms that Great Britain uh, uh, proposes. I'd rather uh, we we all die, <laughs> or the, or the ship is sunk, and so on. Uh, he is, of course, being propagandistic and sophistical. He is already by this time committed totally to rebellion, totally to revolution, and uh, to severing the tie with Great Britain. And and he has a, a kind of phobic antagonism by this time to Great Britain, which he keeps throughout his entire career and the rest of his life, which by colonial standards or early American standards is a rather long life. Because remember, he's born in 1743, and he dies in 1826, the same day on which John Adams the second president of the United States and his sometimes friend and his frequent correspondent also dies. He never, everything he does as uh, as uh, ambassador of France, as secretary, as vice president, as secretary of state, and then as two terms as president, everything that he does uh, is uh, hostile, is based upon or is massaged by or nuanced by a deep emotional anger at uh, Great Britain. Well, he wrote the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. How much was it changed when it finally was it, adopted? It was changed, changed modestly, but it was changed. Uh, he was part of a committee, uh, and that committee uh, uh, got his, uh, he gave his uh, draft to the committee, and the committee proposed some changes. Benjamin Franklin was a member of the committee. The committee felt that um, that some of what Jefferson had written was a bit over the top. And particularly uh, Jefferson's um, insistence that, uh, uh, that, that, that Great Britain uh, and its kings, uh, from James I to uh, King George III, had forced slavery on the United States and uh, that they were to blame for the problem of slavery in the colonies in the United States. So the committee said, no, this, 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 this is a step, this is a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. it's, we know it's not historically accurate. We feel emotionally that we ought to blame them for everything. But we know that uh, our ancestors and that we ourselves have been co-conspirators in, uh, in, in, in the existence of slavery and the continuance of slavery in the United States. So they edited that out. They made a few other changes. Uh, and then it went to the committee of, 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 as a whole, which was the Congress itself. They made a few emanations and changes. A few words were changed here and there. Some things uh, they felt uh, needed of a few further deletions, a few changes of language and so on. And that was the document that they finally approved. It was basically and essentially Jefferson's. Jefferson, as uh, almost every... Uh, proud writer resented every little change that they made and never forgave them for it because he always believed his first draft was uh, 
was uh, was certainly good, and that the changes that were forced upon the document uh, uh, were uh, were mistakes and should not have been forced on the document. And it's like every writer, when an editor comes and says, oh, change this, oh, change that, oh, this is not working well. The editor, uh, the, the writer, you know, at some level, no matter how much he cooperates, is, is somewhat resistant and sometimes says, oh, no, 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 mine is better. And I have to think about uh, how much authority or power you have over me to, uh, to, uh, uh, to influence me to make these changes. But was he seen as the ideal person to write that? Because as I mentioned earlier, many of his contemporaries viewed him with suspicion over his religious views as a slaveholder who preached against slavery in principle but not in practice, as someone who preached against big government and centralized government but not when it went against his own goals. Uh, he, uh, his vision of America's future minimized banking industry and urbanization. And right. although he claimed to support small independent farmers— he was a member of the elite class of landowners who accumulated most of the country's wealth. Yes, uh, inconsistencies, contradictions. He's a human being, and like all of us, um, is uh, try, uh, often holds simultaneously inconsistent or contradictory views. I've never been a slaveholder. Sorry. No, you've never been a slaveholder. But look, uh, you know... Uh, I I wish Jefferson had not been a slaveholder, but I don't condemn him for having been a slaveholder. And I, I would I myself and I would like all of us to consider that if we had been in Jefferson's shoes, would we necessarily have made uh, decisions with regard to slaveholding different from those Jefferson had made? Maybe yes, maybe no. But uh, of course, you were never a slaveholder. Uh, this is obviously we live in a different world, and and the world we live in shapes not only what we think and feel, but the parameters of opportunity that we have around us. So, I don't, you know, I I, I understand the passion that people have and the grievance is that people have now that make the passion even more intense about American history and Jefferson and Washington and James Madison and so on as slaveholders. Uh, but at the same time, I, I urge people to, 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 to think of, well, would they have done differently if they had been there then with those parameters and those situations? Was he seen? Uh, and some people will hasten to say, yes, I would have done differently. But I'm not so sure that's the case. Was he seen as a spokesperson for one uh, view of uh, what the country should be, along with somebody like James Madison, in conflict with Federalists like Washington and Hamilton? Exactly, of course. That was uh, the major political conflict and values conflict. And, uh, I, I write quite a bit about Jefferson and his relationship with Washington, with the, the, President Washington, the first president of the United States, 1793. And he asked Jefferson to be a secretary of state. And, uh, and, and he asks Hamilton to be his secretary of the treasury. Uh, and uh, Jefferson has a, a view of America's future 
And it's basically an agrarian view because he, he thinks he's so connected to the land, the land, the land, and to growing and producing crops from the land. And he thinks that uh, he, uh, people who work the land are innately closer to uh, the essence of the country, of the United States, after, of course, uh, the success of the revolution. Whereas people who live in cities are more free-floating and they're artisans and workers and they're salaried people. They don't own their own property. Influenced by uh, people who uh, want to direct the country in a certain way. And of course, Hamilton is uh, totally the opposite of Jefferson in this regard. Now, I, I want to emphasize that neither Jefferson nor Hamilton are uh, proponents of de democracy as we define it now, as we feel it and believe in it now. Their notion of democracy is considerably different. And, uh, and, and they are both part of elite American society and culture that, in essence, a, a rather comparatively small group of people determine the policies and the law of the country. So uh, Washington is president in 1793, uh, Jefferson Secretary of State, Hamilton Secretary of the Treasury, Jefferson and Hamilton clash day after day in cabinet meetings, uh, day after day. And Je Jefferson makes a record. It's not a complete record of the clash. It's a you kind of keep notes. It's almost like a diary. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful gift to me as a biographer. And, it became the source uh, of, of a music, the plot of a musical. Uh, yes, yes. I, I, I haven't seen the musical. I'm probably one of the very few people who haven't. And that's partly because I was writing a biography of Jefferson, and maybe the musical would be so powerful and good that it would influence no. me. I'm, I'm joking, really. That would not have been the case. Uh, but uh, whatever, I mean, the musical is, is not about, uh, mostly about history is my sense of it. It's mostly about uh, how some people look at the, the history, that how some people now, and how we can create a certain kind of drama that will appeal to people now. So one of these days I may see it, and I shouldn't really say anything more about it. I shouldn't have views about it because I haven't seen it. But yes, of course, it was very, it was dramatic, and uh, and 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 Washington had to be the referee, but at the same time he had to steer the country, and he was more, even though he was a huge landover and owner landowner and a holder of slaves and so on in Virginia. Washington had basically the same view that Hamilton had, which was that uh, uh, important as agriculture was to the country, manufacturing and industry and trade and urban centers and uh, banking and collateral were uh, also extremely important. And Washington, like Hamilton, had more of a national vision of the country, of, of a nationalized single country, whereas Jefferson thought of the federal government as having important unifying qualities, but that each state was in its own way independent of the national government. Actually. So that constant conflict between uh, federalism associated with Washington and especially Hamilton and republicanism as associated with 
uh, Jefferson went on continuously, and it goes on right down to this the day. Moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> April 13, 1743, to a family in VA. Thomas Jefferson was born on a Saturday. He was one of ten children and studied what he saw. He learned to speak three languages, the violin and law. At William and Mary it was... I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Fred Kaplan. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, His Masterly Pen, a biography of the writings of Jefferson the Writer. Just... Go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We, we will be happy to send you a copy, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much in return to Fred Kaplan, who is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English at Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're discussing his latest book, his masterly pen, a biography of the writings of Jefferson the Writer, which is published by Harper. Uh, now, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the conflicts. You include a lot of his exchanges with Washington, Madison, Hamilton, John and Abigail Adams, and friends like Maria Cosway. And, uh, and you talk a lot about the fact that, well, first let's talk about that for a second. Maria Cosway? Was she a painter and musician who, uh, with whom he had an affair? Yeah, yes, he was. She was uh, younger and quite beautiful uh, and married with a Catholic background from her uh, years as a child uh, in Italy, where she was born to British parents uh, living in Italy. And uh, she and her husband who was a well-known uh, artist, caricaturist, and part of the uh, uh, elite culture of the British court, uh, were visiting in Paris. And he was introduced to her, uh, and uh, the two of them clearly were enraptured with one another. Uh, that did, did, did they have an affair in the modern use of that word? I'm, I'm pretty certain not. Uh, but it, uh, it was an awakening for Jefferson. Uh, his wife had died some years before. They had six children. Only two survived. He had gone off to Paris after uh, a year or so after her death uh, as, uh, the, uh, as an, uh, uh, to become soon the ambassador mm -hmm. to the court of Louis XVI at Versailles. And... Uh, and, and he was he was a sad man, though he was intensely committed to soothing that sadness by hard work, by dedicated commitment to the new country and to doing the best he could for it in France, uh, where the, the country needed the support of uh, French finances and French uh, military and navy. So when he when he came to France, uh, he was uh, emotionally a wounded man. And uh, he also, from 
uh, the beginning of his life and was a man who repressed feeling uh, as much as possible and uh, rarely allowed himself to talk about or write about his emotions, his feelings. He did sometimes, but you have to look hard to find In fact, you, those letters. I get the feeling from what you've written that he used words to both reveal and conceal from others yeah, and himself. Exactly, exactly. The, the, the complications, course, yeah. the inconsistencies, and the contradictions between his principles and his policies, between his head and his heart, between yeah. the optimistic view of human nature and the realities of his personal situation in the world he lived in. Exactly, Leonard. He, he did do. He did do that. He used words and language uh, to reveal and to conceal, uh, to soothe, but also to hurt. And uh, his own uh, genius as a writer, uh, partly at least, consists in uh, his ability to simultaneously use language to uh, shape uh, himself and other people and his own country, and at the same time to use language in a way that uh, created constructs that were aspirational in regard to the country and in regard to his feelings uh, that did not necessarily uh, uh, adhere to the reality of the world. And this is the case in regard to slavery. This is the case in regard to the American Indian culture and civilization. This is in regard to uh, the rebellion against Great Britain. Uh, and uh, sometimes, in fact, in reading the Declaration of Independence, after you get by the, the first introductory broad paragraph that's so frequently quoted, I begin to feel a little sorry for poor George III. He's, <laughs> he's so lambasted. Uh, well, Jefferson doesn't know George III. He doesn't really care about George III personally. Uh, and uh, but but when <laughs> the Declaration got to London, I mean, it, 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 it would be like one of you know, one of our. Uh, elite American leaders today, our president, uh, insulting King Charles <laughs> or insulting the memory of Queen Elizabeth with harsh criticisms. Well, of course, it was then a uh, rebellion in progress. And, uh, and Jefferson was one of the most important mouthpieces of that rebellion. So, yes, you know, I mean, I, I have to empathize with uh the way he's able to take what he's given, what, what's on his plate or the cards that he's given to play. And he plays them uh, so magnificently uh, and achieves so much within his lifetime and gives us a gift of so much despite all of the aspects of the world he lives in and the things that he doesn't change or harshly enough criticize that we, uh, uh, we abhor. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, biography in life is what Thomas Carlyle wrote in an essay about biography. For me, at least, it's warts and all. And all of us have warts. Now, he was a prolific writer. He, you, you, he wrote approximately 100,000 letters before he died. But during his lifetime, he only published one book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Yeah. Uh, 
And isn't that uh, the book that you say provides Jefferson's fullest comments on race and slavery? What do we learn from it? And why only one book, considering the fact that he wrote a lot more? Well, Jefferson never saw himself as a professional writer. And uh, even Notes on the State of Virginia, his only book, is uh, created uh, gradually uh, over time, as he adds to it, uh, in response to a request by the French ambassador to the United States uh, for uh, the governors of various American states to inform him in writing so he could communicate this to the French court and to the French public all about the, the, the states they live in, the economy, the agriculture, the industry, uh, uh, the leadership, uh, the sociology, the anthropology, the size, the rivers, and so on, because the Europeans, the French, and the Europeans in general know very little about North America. And a lot of what they know is sort of mythic. You know, it's not actually correct. Uh, uh, Jefferson tries to correct some of that. So even the one book he writes is not because he sat down and said, I want to write a book. I'm a writer. Not at all. And he never had visions of, you know, the Shakespeare or Byron or what have you. The way Lincoln did, for example, who early on thought that uh, that he might become actually a, a published writer. And he was aspirational about that. He wrote, Lincoln wrote poetry, and, and some of it was published. Jefferson never did anything of that sort. In fact, another book was published, but after he died, right? Notes of a tour into the southern parts of France? Yes, yes. But that, that was a, a comparatively minor work in the sense that, you know, it has no great significance for us today as a political or propaganda or is it providing insights into uh, the, the conditions and, and, uh, and the issues of the New Republic. Now, uh, he wrote that as a document uh, that he thought would be helpful to the American Congress uh, in creating a, f a foreign policy and dealing with the French ally uh, uh, that the information and the evaluation that he was uh, uh, creating in these notes as he took this trip through southern France and into northern Italy uh, was uh, was was prompt notes for for information and consideration by the Congress. He didn't mean it to be widely distributed or read by people like me. You know. Uh, so, no, he, he did not think of himself, and even though he wrote constantly, he did not think of, of himself as a writer. And the notion of publishing anything was foreign to him. And I suspect he would have been shocked to realize that somebody uh, could publish a book uh, of nearly 600 pages about his, well, his life and his writing. And yeah, you could have made it maybe a little shorter. You know, I always think of that. I should have made it a little shorter. Yes, he would have been. Uh, you know, I don't know if he would have been shocked. Let me let me uh, sort of alter what I what I was saying. Um, I don't know if he would have been shocked that uh, that we, uh, that me, and others uh, have written or are writing biographies of of him, because uh, by the time 
Jefferson became president, his first uh, term of office in 181, his second term of office and left the presidency in 189. He was very concerned about how future Americans would think about him. And he went to some real efforts to, to, uh, to create uh, accounts of uh, his uh, uh, presidency, his time in France and so on, uh, and, uh, and to massage uh, certain uh, documents in a way so as to be favorable towards him and to, towards his vision of the country. So Jefferson made some efforts to rewrite history uh, so that uh, the future would, uh, would, would have his version of himself. Including the uh, inscription for his tombstone? Yes, yes. He was very selective on, uh, about what he would put on it. Uh, and he was very specific about uh, how he wanted the future to remember him. And it didn't. He didn't want the future to remember him as a slaveholder. That wasn't, uh, you know. And he was a bad farmer, really, a poor farmer. He never made. He he owned huge swaths of land and so on. But it, it was not a major interest of his, and he was not exceptionally good at it. Uh, no, he wanted to remember him as uh, the creator of the uh, Virginia statute of religious liberty, right? And. Uh, wanted uh, the future to remember him as the author of the Declaration of Independence, and also wanted uh, the future to remember him uh, because of his, uh, uh, the, the, the major, the determining role he played in the creation of the University of Virginia. So really, that's, you know, everything else, you know, that's, that's sort of what he, uh, that's the epitome in his mind of his achievements. Uh, of what he's contributed to the world he was born into and the world he died in. My guest is Fred Kaplan, whose uh, latest book is his masterly pen, a biography of Jefferson the writer, published by Harper. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. We've mentioned that you wrote a previous book about Abraham Lincoln. Would you say that Jefferson and Lincoln were the two best presidential writers um, uh, in the English language? Uh, yes, and I, I, I would add a third. I would, I would add John Quincy Adams. Uh, You've also and, written a book about him, calling yeah, him an so American visionary. Adams. And much of the biography is uh, based on uh, the diaries that uh, John Quincy Adams kept throughout his life. And they're voluminous uh, and wonderful because he is as honest as a human being can possibly be in trying to make a record of himself and his contemporaries and what they're doing and so on. And it's a personal diary too. We don't have that either from Lincoln or Jefferson, a personal diary, in which Adams pours his heart out about the death of one of his sons, for example, and other personal matters. Uh, those diaries are now available, of course, to us in a, in a two-volume edition from the Library of America. They don't contain the complete diaries, but there are best selections from the diaries and quite extensive. They're very moving and very touching and very beautiful. And he is a terrific writer, but not for public consumption within his time. 
he does do some writing, of course, considerable writing, uh, but he doesn't have the same gift that Lincoln has and that Jefferson has in in regard to political uh, literature and writing propaganda. His literature and literature is propaganda. So there's no great public document by John Quincy Adams, uh, just as there isn't by his father, second president, John Adams. That's, you know, part of our of our deepest historical memory, the way the Declaration of Independence is, or the Gettysburg Address is. Uh, no, we don't have that, but John Quincy Adams, I would add, uh, as a, a third presidential writer to but, that list. But Lincoln and Jefferson, Lincoln and Jefferson are both uh, fascinating because of how contradictory they, they were throughout their lives. Yes, uh, Lincoln less so than Jefferson. Well, Lincoln was a supporter. I mean, he looked the other way about slavery until he no longer could. Yes, but 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 yes, and and just as Jefferson, he strongly condemned let, uh, let slavery morally, mm -hmm. but he felt that it was an embedded institution of great strength and power and profitability in American culture. And it should end and after he died. It, it, I'm sorry, Lennon, I didn't hear that. And I said, and and he thought it should be put to an end after he died. Yes, though, you see, the war, the war, or the rebellion, secession, forced on Lincoln uh, an opportunity that uh, he had no choice but to take uh, in order to win the war, uh, which was to make... Uh, eventually with the Emancipation Proclamation and then thereafter, uh, something he couldn't prevent anyway because the war conditions uh, 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 contributed uh, to this, uh, the eventual emancipation of all those held as slaves in the states that had seceded from the Union. Mr. Kaplan, we have very little time and I did want to uh, address one other issue, uh, the fact that he detested Andrew Jackson. Um, did he die a disillusioned man because he was upset someone like Andrew Jackson could be elected to the presidency? Yes, yes. And of course, for all modern readers of the presidential record and of biographies by me and others of both of, of Jefferson in particular, uh, the, the, it, he, if, if, if Jefferson had been our contemporary, he would have said, oh, yes, Donald Trump. Another Andrew Jackson, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Jefferson uh, detested Jackson because he saw him as autocratic and as uh, insensitive and as bullying, uh, uh, as uh, a leader, um, both a populist uh, and an elitist at the same time, uh, and on and on. Yes, uh, he detested Jefferson and uh, Jackson and was appalled at the notion that Jackson would become president. And you, you uh, seem to be suggesting that he would have been horrified by our current political situation. He, he, would, in, he would indeed. He would feel uh, that his vision of America uh, had, uh, had, had, been, uh, had not been embodied or realized. Because he, he believed that the public would always choose the right person. And, That's and, right. He and had, it was when had, Andrew Jackson was elect, yeah. elected that he said, oh, gee, I guess I was wrong about that. Uh, yes, he, he did. He did say that. <laughs> he did feel that. Uh, and that Jackson was approaching the presidency uh, in, in the year in which uh, 
in which Jefferson died. Uh, we have yes. We have to leave it there, unfortunately, but uh, I thank you so much for talking with us about this uh, wonderful new book, His Masterly Pen, the biography of Jefferson, the writer, uh, published by Harper. Uh, Fred Kaplan, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because BAI and Pacifica are going through really rough economic times. Um, we are asking all of our listeners to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large by calling right now or by going online right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing His Masterly Pen a biography of Jefferson the Writer by Fred Kaplan. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And we hope that you will consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, because uh, if you agree to uh, support us through $10 a month or $15 a month or 20 or however much you can afford, uh, it allows us to plan for the future. And uh, uh, and and we will also say well, and we will send you a BAI buddy a tote bag for anyone who becomes a buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So. If you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Lodge, why not let us know you appreciate what we do on the show by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. <laughs>